0: You're listening to Defending the Biblical Roots of Christianity, an apologetics and theology podcast hosted by Professor R.L. Solberg. For more information about our ministry, visit thebiblicalroots.org. We are getting close to the finish line here on our big examination on the case we're building uh, as we look at the Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. This is episode 9 out of what I'm pretty sure still we can keep to an 11-part mini-series. We'll see how that all works out. But as I mentioned, we're looking at the Jewish-Christian relations in the early church, which, of course, is the subject of my book, Divergence. This miniseries is a companion to that book, which you can find at divergencebook.com or on amazon.com. And really, the point of the book is to take a look at these early years of the of the Christian faith, and the scope that we had set out was from the ministry of Jesus up through the Council of Nicaea in 325. And our goal here is to systematically look through the writings of the New Testament, and then the early writings of the Christian church, and then we look at the Council of Nicaea, and we're tracing not only the relationship between Jews and Christians, but we, ser- we we specifically want to look at Christian theology and the Christian posture or attitude towards the Jewish people. So number one, did Christian theology veer off course during those early centuries as the church was just really trying to find its way? And number two, was there some level of anti-Jewish sentiment that sent it veering off course? Um, in other words, was there... Concerted attempt to separate or diverge from the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. So if you've been with us since the beginning, you, you know that we are putting together, step by step, a case. And so we've been looking at different pieces of evidence, and our overall research is kind of broken down into three stages. Stage one, we went through the New Testament writings. We looked at what Jesus and Paul wrote about the Jewish people, about how we are to treat them and think of them. And then we came up with what sort of emerged from those from that research was a five-point biblical framework about how Christians should regard the Jews the Jewish people as well as Jewish theology and then we moved from the writings of the New Testament to the post-New Testament writings. That's stage two, and today is the final episode of stage two. So we've looked at some early teachings, some early writings, and today we're going to summarize the things that we've looked at over the last few episodes during this early Christian writing period, the Apostolic Fathers and the Church Fathers. We're not only going to create a sort of summary of all these early Christian writings that we've looked at, but we're also going to take a look at them as compared to our New Testament five-point framework. And then another thing we've done along the way is we've had two theological markers. One of them is the Lord's Day versus Sabbath, and the other is Passover versus Easter. These are two issues of contention between Jews and Christians, and so we wanted to use them as markers to sort of trace the progress through the centuries the first three centuries of the Christian faith so today we're going to be looking at those two markers as well as they as they are evidenced in these early Christian writings so let's get into it okay so we'll start with a, just a summary of the early Christian writings now in these early writings we we certainly find evidence of struggle on the part really of both Jews and the early Christians um, as we, as we looked at they were each, trying to work out the boundaries of their beliefs for example uh in a writing called the didache which we're going to look at a little more closely in a minute the early christian community was expressing a desire to pray differently than the jews and they have they preferred to use the the lord's prayer from matthew 6 9 through 13 which makes sense as Christians, and it's obvious why Jews wouldn't want to pray like that, uh, having rejected the New Testament and rejected Jesus. But this writing, specifically the Didache, indicates to us that the early Christian communities specifically chose Wednesdays and Fridays to fast— because they knew the Jews fasted on Mondays and Thursdays at that time, so there was a definite intentional attempt to be different than the Jews. Uh, the Christians wanted to mark their boundaries and their borderlines and say, "Hey, this is us, and we are different from the Jew- the Jews who obviously rejected." The New Testament again and and rejected Christ, and this was a sticky thing to do because, as we've discussed, many of the early Christians, all of the first Christians, and many of their early Christians were Jewish believers in Jesus. Matter of fact, Christianity was originally called the Way, and the early Jewish believers, as we read in the New Testament, considered this to be the natural progression of the Jewish faith. And so we have the Christians now trying to establish some borderlines or boundaries, but it's not only the Christians; the Jews were doing the same thing. So we've got—we talked about this earlier. The Jews introduced something called the Burkot Hamanim, which is the Benedict against heretics, and this was something that was recited in the Jewish synagogues to pressure the Jewish believers in Christ out of the synagogues. They wanted a separation as much as the Christians did. Now, given all of that back and forth and headbutting that happened on along theological lines on the whole, what we see in these early Christian writings that we've looked at is that they actually line up pretty well with our five-point biblical perspective. So let me go through these five points and we'll kind of talk about how they are reflected in the early writings. So our framework begins with number one, recognize Israel's central role in God's story. This is one of the five points that are taught in the New Testament. So the early Christian writings, um, what we see there is that the early church fathers were displaying a really thorough understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, as well as the the role that Israel played as the nation through which Christ came. They also universally viewed Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Mashiach, that was foretold in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Tanakh. So the early Christian writings are really strong on that point. However, the the recognition of Israel— And the Jewish people as having a privileged position doesn't appear quite as strong there. It was alluded to by Justin Martyr in the second century when we read his dialogue with Trifo, and less so by Cyprian in the third century. So point two of our framework is acknowledge the failure of Jewish religious leadership. And point three is reject Jewish teachings that deny Christ. And I I lump these two together because the early Christian writers really unanimously supported both. They they unanimously acknowledged the failure of the Jewish religious leadership, as certainly as they were recounting the stories as told in the New Testament about how Jewish religious leadership didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah and were culpable in his death. And the early Christian writers also unanimously rejected those Jewish teachings that denied Christ, because that's pretty much a showstopper right there. That is the very core, the kernel of the difference between Judaism and Christianity, is whether or not Christ was who he said he was. Now on point number four of our framework, which is understand Israel's future salvation, it's interesting that the record stands pretty much silent on this issue. It's not explicitly discussed in any of the early writings reviewed. It's perhaps alluded to uh, in terms of Israel or at least individual Jews being urged to find salvation in Jesus. But understanding Israel's future salvation as the Jewish people, it really isn't discussed. And then number five in our five-point framework is this one, love and earnestly desire, the salvation of Jews. So we see Justin Martyr, for example, expressing this desire outright, right? And in Melito and in Cyprian... The salvation of the jews if it's not you know directly addressed it's at least affirmed as available it's unanimously promoted as part of the gospel desire that these early christians all had that all should come to salvation in christ all including the jews so, we looked at our five point biblical framework and, and saw that the early writings lined up pretty well. But let's turn now to those two theological markers that we were talking about. We'll start here with Sabbath versus the Lord's Day. And the conflict, of course, uh, is wrapped around this idea of the Sabbath being kept on the last day of the week. And the early Christians, including the Jewish early believers in Jesus, began gathering on the first day of the week as a as a way to commemorate the day that jesus was resurrected and his tomb was found empty and we saw hints of the believers gathering on the first day of the week as early as the new testament writings itself and now these are confirmed in one of christianity's earliest known extra-biblical writings which is called the long title is the teaching of the lord to the gentiles through the twelve apostles Uh, More commonly, this is known as the Didache, which means the teaching. Now, this is an anonymous document, and we don't have a very specific date. Uh, Some date it as early as the 60s, which would have been before the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. It would have been while many of the apostles were still alive and Paul was still writing his letters. Uh, Some scholars date it as late as the year 100 or 120. So somewhere in that range, which certainly is contemporaneous with early Christians, the the apostolic era— And the Didache really served as a sort of an operating manual of sorts for early Christian communities, so they would understand things like, uh, you know, how do we want to pray, and and when do we want to fast, and those sorts of things. Uh, How should we we operate our gatherings every week when we get together? And one thing that we find in this document is that the early Christians— were gathering on the first day of the week and they were referring to it as the Lord's day. So in section 14 of this document and by the way, uh you know there are various English translations of this of this document and some of them put headings headlines on each section. And so some of the translations for section 14 that we're about to read from uh one of them the the Robert Donaldson translation says Christian assembly on the Lord's day. And the, the Stanaforth translation gives it a, a section title of, Of Sunday Worship. And the Kersop Lake translation gives it, The Sunday Worship. So it's very clear that this is a section about gathering on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And this section begins with these words. And this is from the Stanaforth translation. And on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure so we have very early confirmation perhaps even contemporaneous with the new testament writings that that christians had already begun gathering on the first day of the week, and we know they continued that throughout the first three centuries of the faith. Now, the reason for this universal adoption of the first day of the week is obviously no mystery. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is by far the most critical fact in Christendom, and it happened on the first day of the week. The Apostle Paul taught its significance in 1 Corinthians 15. We read this, starting at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And skipping down to verse 17 here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, if all of Scripture points to Christ and all of Christ's work was validated by his resurrection, then it's really no exaggeration to categorize the resurrection as the single most important event in the history of the human race. It's more important by far than the weekly Sabbath. So D.A. Carson wrote this book called From Sabbath to Lord's Day, and in it there's a scholar named Andrew Lincoln. He, he explains that the resurrection of Jesus, quote, provided the first Christians with all the justification they needed to transfer the permanent significance of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first. Just like the Sabbath, the Lord's Day was kept as a day of worship, centered on God's acts of new creation and redemption in Jesus, and, whenever possible, as a day of rest. Separation of worship and rest would never have occurred to a first-century Jew for whom Sabbath rest was worship. So it really makes sense then that the early church, who believed that the legal Sabbath commandment under the law of Moses was no longer binding, and understanding the staggering importance of the resurrection, it makes sense that they would gather together on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and call it the Lord's Day. So this view of Sabbath and the Lord's Day is really actually consistent with the two points that we established in our New Testament baseline for this theological marker. And these two points were this. The New Testament teaches, number one, keeping the Jewish observance of the Sabbath on the last day of the week is allowed, but no longer required. And number two, the New Testament teaches that gathering on the first day of the week is also allowed, but not required. Let's look at the second of our theological markers here, which is the issue of Passover versus Easter. So in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 5, uh, starting at verse 7b, "'Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.'" As we've established, the majority of early Christians were Jewish, and they were no doubt inspired by Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 5. They began to celebrate his resurrection annually as part of the Passover holiday. Eusebius tells us that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem celebrated the resurrection in this way under the first 15 bishops who were, he says, of Jewish descent. And Moishe Rosen, who's the Jewish believer in Jesus, who we, we talked about earlier, he tells us this, quote, "...the bishops sent out Paschal epistles every year to notify the Christians when Passover would fall, according to the Jewish lunar calendar." So in the early decades of Christianity, as they were trying to work out this issue... A disagreement or a disparity developed that would ultimately play a role in dividing the Eastern Church from the Western Church. When it came to the annual commemoration of the resurrection, Jewish Christians, along with some Gentiles, followed the Jewish calendar. They celebrated Jesus' resurrection on the 14th day of the Jewish month called Nisan. And this was when Passover occurred, the actual date of Jesus' Last Last Supper, as we read in the New Testament. So obviously, if you're commemorating it based on a date, that date is going to fall on a different day of the week every year. Now, most Gentile Christians, they obviously felt really no allegiance to a Jewish calendar, and they preferred to commemorate the resurrection on the first day of the week, since Sunday was the day that Jesus' tomb was discovered empty. Now, the earliest mention of Christians celebrating the resurrection comes to us from the second century writings of both uh, Justin Martyr and Tertullian. Most scholars believe that that observance had been occurring for some time prior to the writings that we have. In fact, many historians hold that the annual remembrance of the resurrection dates back to the first century. There's evidence in the New Testament that the commemoration of or at least a reflection on the resurrection, occurred as often as weekly among early Christians. Believers had begun gathering on the first day of the week to, quote, break bread, which is a phrase regularly used in the New Testament to refer to the Lord's Supper. And at that time, of course, the church was really a loose network of congregations and they were scattered across the Eastern Roman Empire, and they didn't have any sort of a central authority. You know, each community was led by a local bishop, and and by the way, bishops in the early church, they weren't the formal authorities that we see today. Rather, they were typically the more educated member of a church or a community who was kind of chosen from among the community to lead the congregation. They considered them the first among equals. So when it came to Easter, each community was free to choose how or if they wanted to commemorate the resurrection. So there we had some communities that would celebrate the resurrection on the 14th of Nisan, and those were, we talked about earlier, the Quartodecimans. And other communities chose the Sunday after Passover. And over the course of the first few centuries, the disagreement on a proper date became really a matter of pretty significant controversy among the among the church. There's a 4th century historian named Eusebius who wrote this, A question of no small importance arose at the time of Pope Victor I, which would have been around AD 190. The diocese of all Asia, according to an ancient tradition, held that the 14th day, on which the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should always be observed as the feast of the life-giving Pash, or Pash contending that the fast ought to end on that day, whatever day of the week it might happen to be. However, it was not the custom of the churches in the rest of the world to end it at this point, as they observed the practice, which from apostolic tradition has prevailed to the present time, of terminating the fast on no other day than on that of the resurrection of our Savior, meaning, of course, the first day of the week. So we see that the church was really torn between commemorating the resurrection of Christ on the date of the Jewish Passover or on the day his tomb was found empty. And it turns out that no matter which day they chose, the early church fell safely into the three-point New Testament baseline that we uncovered. And that three-point baseline of what the New Testament teaches about this is, number one, under the New Covenant— The law of Moses, including the Passover obligation, was fulfilled by Jesus. The Lord's Supper is now our Passover. Therefore, number two, the celebration of the Jewish Passover is allowed, but not required, of Christians. And number three, the New Testament neither requires nor condemns the celebration of Christ's resurrection. But it does teach the validity of man-made traditions that honor God. And that goes back to our discussion earlier in an earlier episode about Easter. So I think what we're seeing here then is the freedom in Christ, the biblical freedom that's given to Christians on this issue has really accounted for the variation that we see in how and when the early church celebrated the resurrection. And it allows for the variation that is still found in the church today um, because As many of you know, Eastern Christianity follows the Julian calendar rather than the Gregorian calendar that's used by most countries, and therefore they actually observe Easter on a different date than the rest of us. But either way, in the end, because Scripture offers no commands for or against commemorating the resurrection, there really is no right or wrong day to celebrate it. In the same way that freedom in Christ has made keeping Passover optional for us, celebrating the resurrection is also a valid option for Christians. So that wraps up our summary of the early Christian writings on our biblical five-point framework and our two theological markers. And now we are primed and ready for stage three of our investigation. Next episode, we are going to be diving into the Council of Nicaea. Very interesting, and I think we're going to clear up a lot of common misconceptions that are held today, both inside and outside of the Christian church, about who Constantine was and what really happened and what was really decided at the Council of Nicaea. So thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com, my website, and I will catch you next time. Shalom.